What's up, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to this extra special episode of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I've got some wonderful content from last night's Noir at the Bar event in Hoover, Alabama. We had a bunch of fantastic authors come out and give readings from their current works, uh, some short stories that have been published, and some of their future uh, books that are yet to be published. And uh, guys, it was just an amazing time with a great crowd. Uh, but we've got readings by Jeff Strand, Hank Early, David Powell, Andy Davidson, Nathan Ballingrude, Roger Johns, Emily Carpenter, Matt Weber, and Robert McCammon. Uh, now you'll have to excuse me because I did uh, get a good bit of background noise in some of these recordings, considering we were in a coffee shop uh, and we did have quite a crowd, so there will be some background and crowd noise. Uh, but hopefully you guys will enjoy these recordings uh, and I hope you guys tune in to my next episode where I'll be talking to Angus Watson about his currently current fantasy trilogy, uh, where he'll be releasing the third book in that series called Where God's Fear to Go. Uh, really looking forward to that one. But I hope you guys enjoy this one and continue to listen in. Thanks. First on the docket, we have Jeff Strand reading a short story entitled Clicking the Heart. I'm Jeff Strand. I'm kind of disappointed to be going second because I was hoping someone else would be the turning point where the night went so horribly wrong. (laughs) But it's me. And this story is called Clicking the Heart. Charles didn't like to judge people based on their personal appearance. So though the man was ugly, sweaty, and had a jagged scar on his cheek, Charles chose to judge him based on the fact that he was holding a gun. (laughs) May I help you, asked Charles? He didn't usually answer the door when people pounded on it after midnight. He wished he'd stuck to that tonight. Sure, said the other guy. I'm Brian. I'm a hitman. Charles tried to slam the door in his face, but Brian pushed his way into the living room. Charles lunged at the coffee table, intending to grab an oversized, never-read book with which to bash the assassin in the face. Brian was faster. A moment later, Charles found himself lying on the floor, whimpering and clutching his freshly punched chin. I was hired by Ms. Regina Anderson, Brian told him. I'm sure that name is familiar. Charles Brown. Um, kind of? I've never met her in person. I think we're Facebook friends. <laughs> you two are indeed Facebook friends. You've been Facebook friends for almost a year. So now you understand why I'm here. No, said Charles, not at all. We've never exchanged private messages. I don't know where she lives. She hardly ever even shows up on my timeline. But she showed up yesterday, didn't she? Yeah, I think so, I guess. Her cat died. Exactly. At 2.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time yesterday, Regina Anderson posted that her cat Fluffy Fur crossed over the Rainbow Bridge. She was looking for compassion and support in her time of mourning, but you clicked the heart icon. You clicked that you loved the fact that Fluffy Fur was dead. Have you no soul? No, no, no. I, I clicked the heart to show that I was thinking about her and her loss. Her post said nice things about the cat, and she posted a picture of him. That's what the heart was for. That's not how she interpreted it. <laughs> she thought you loved her new catless existence. <laughs> Charles frantically shook his head. No, she had it all wrong. It was an expression of sympathy. Brian took a piece of paper out of his pocket. Well, unfortunately, it's too late to cancel this work order. <laughs> Please, this is all a mistake. Don't kill me. Well, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to kill your pets. <laughs> Wait, what? She said to come here and kill every pet in your home. But I don't have any pets, said Charles. None? None? My lease doesn't allow me to have them. Not even a goldfish? 
Now I've always found goldfish to be kind of boring. So just tell her, Gina, it was all one big misunderstanding and that I don't have any pets anyway. Sorry, I forfeit my fee if I don't kill your pet. So we have to move to plan B. He took out his cell phone and tapped on the screen a few times. Surely she'll understand what I really meant, said Charles. It's not like I clicked the happy face icon. There was a knock on the door. Come in, said Brian. The door opened, revealing an adult male in a tight-fitting dog suit that covered everything except his face. He stepped inside. This is Fido. Fido is what they call a furry. Now, not all furries get sexual pleasure out of dressing in their animal suits, but Fido sure does. Don't leave your leg unguarded. Charles just stared, not the gate. Fido is now your pet, said Brian, a gift from me to you. Fido bounced over to Charles and panted happily. I don't want him, said Charles. Tough, he's yours. Then Brian placed the barrel of the gun against Fido's head and pulled the trigger. Furry brains sprayed everywhere. Fido fell to the floor. Not gonna lie, said Brian, that was way more messed up in real life than when I rehearsed it in my mind. Anyway, my job here is done. Now clean up after your pet. Next up, we have Hank Early reading a couple of snippets from his new novel, Echoes of the Fall, which is the third book in his Earl Marcus Mysteries trilogy. Okay, I'm Hank Early, and I'm going to be reading for my third um, Earl Marcus book, Echoes of the Fall. And I'm just going to read a few pages, but uh, they're going to be from two different sections. So just a page from one section and then a, page, a couple pages from another section. They both deal with um, some characters uh, that are called the Hill Brothers. And the main character, Earl Marcus, is, uh, he's sort of, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but he's, he's curious about the Hill Brothers. So it starts off, um, he, he sees them one afternoon. When I woke, it was afternoon, and Goose was barking at something in the yard. I went to the kitchen window and saw the Hill Brothers, shimmering ghosts in the midday heat, they were on their way down the mountain and had taken a shortcut through my yard, as they often did. I found myself wondering if they were twins. They both had dark complexions and long, fragile faces. Their eyes didn't move. They flitted, never lingering on anything long. They ignored Goose as he barked at them and trudged on through the shade of the oaks and out into the open sun. They were dressed in dark t-shirts and ripped blue jeans split open at the ankles to fit around their oversized boots. One brother's hair was longer than the other's and he was thinner too, lending him the appearance of a strung out rock star. The other one looked more like a character from a Flannery O'Connor short story. He had short hair, cut as if he'd worn a bowl for a crown and gone to work with the scissors himself. He was the taller of the two and walked with an easy athleticism, chewing a blade of grass as he moved past the house and toward the dirt road connecting me with the rest of the world. Before thinking it through, I went to the front door. I opened it up, whistled at Goose to stop barking and then called out to them. Could I ask you boys something? The long-haired one turned to look at me, his eyes sliding over my face, as if he already knew what I was going to say and had no patience for it. The other brother didn't even acknowledge me. I jogged over to them, trying to catch up with their long, relentless strides. Did you boys hear any shooting up this way last night? This time, the short-haired one with a piece of grass looked at me. His expression was wilder, more feral, like a dog kept in a cage for too long, but couldn't wait to get out to bite someone, anyone. No, he said, his voice soft but ragged, was something that might have been scorned. I stopped, a little stunned by the animosity I felt from him. I'd heard stories that they'd both been born addicted to drugs, that they'd never known either of their parents, and he'd grown up more like animals than people. 
I should have known better than to try to engage, engage them. They disappeared onto the dirt road and over the rise. I watched their dust gather in the wake of their passage and wondered at how many mysteries these mountains could hold and if any of them could ever truly be unlocked. So the next time he encounters them is at a little, uh, I guess a honky-tonk kind of up in the mountains. One afternoon, he and um, a friend are the only ones there and the bartender, and they walk in again. The screen door swung open. I'll take that back. There's one other person there. You'll meet him too. His, they, he goes by Slim. The screen door swung open. I turned and saw two men enter, the Hill Brothers. As interested as I was in Eleanor Walsh's story, I couldn't focus on her words. Instead, I sat transfixed as the two men approached the bar, both of them crowding around the kid who had been looking for a fight. Neither man acknowledged him as the taller one leaned against the bar and said something to the fat bartender still slumped in his chair. The bartender's face changed when he saw the brothers, and he pulled out two bottles of beer, twisting off the caps before passing them over. No money exchanged hands as the two boys took the bottles and scanned the small, hot room. The long-haired brother lifted his bottle and touched it to the side of his hairy face. As he did, his shirt rode up to reveal a scarred midsection and the top of a pearl-handled revolver, revolver protruding from the waistband of his blue jeans. Their eyes never stopped, never rested, roaming around the room like there might be an attacker lying in wait among us, and they'd need to be ready. They stood, stood too close to the young man in the suit, and his anger had shifted away from me toward them. I turned back to Eleanor. Hold that thought, I said softly. I want to see this. The Hill brothers had finally given the kids some space as one of them stepped toward the door and the other one settled in against the far wall. It seemed odd to see them like this. Still at last, their ceaseless motion finally stopped. Whenever I'd seen them before, they'd always been on the move and their long, dogged strides had almost become a part of their character. Now I saw a different side of them. Now their attitude was somewhere between fuck this place and we're going to stay for a while. Just when I was about to turn back to Eleanor, the kid said something under his breath. When no one reacted to his words, he said it louder. Assholes come in like they own the place. Neither Hill brother acknowledged him. Instead, their eyes went from their beer bottles to the windows back to me and Eleanor at our table, an endless cycle, like each stop was a note in a song with his own curious tempo. Hey, the kid said, looking at the taller Hill brother, the one with the bowl cut, I'm talking to you. Volka looked at the kid briefly before setting his bottle down on the table and pulling out a pouch of tobacco. He reached into the pouch for a huge hunk of dark leaves and stuffed it deep inside his jowls. He sucked on it for a while, then opened the window behind him and leaned out to spit. Livingstone, the kid cried, you gonna let him chew tobacco in your place? Livingstone sat up on his chair behind the bar. He ain't hurting me. Sorry. <laughs> And what about paying for the beers? I want a free beer too. They got a tab, Slim. You better just mind your own business. Slim slammed his beer can down on the bar, and for the first time I realized he wasn't just drunk. He was also filled with something else, something that had found him when he was a young man and stuck inside him, something that managed to drive him and move him and imprison him all at once. There were places in these mountains where they say bad water messed with people's minds and made them insane, incapable of living in polite society. Maybe that explains what we were witnessing. I don't think it's right, Slim said. He, slant, he stood up and step, stepped in front of Volka, jabbing a finger in his face. You need to take your uneducated asses back to the woods. Volka lifted his beer bottle to his lips and drank it empty. Then instead of putting it down on the table, he turned it over in his hand until he held the bottle by the throat, the fat end jugging out from his grasp like a baseball bat. With a sudden and terrifyingly efficient motion, 
He slammed it in his little head. The bottle exploded, glass flying all over the small room. A piece landed in my hair, and I brushed it out as I stood up, reaching for my 45. Two things happened before I could get it out. Slim hit the plank floor with a hollow thud. The other hill brother pulled out his pearl-handed 38 and aimed it at my face. His eyes settled on me, still for the first time. There was nothing in them, nothing to make me think he wouldn't shoot me, nothing to make me think he'd care if I was dead or alive. I raised my hands in the air. He's gonna need a doctor, I said. Bowcut's eyes fell on me before flitting to Livingston. Two more for the road, he said, in a voice that might as well have been the mountains themselves speaking. It was so dusty and deep and unused. Livingston snapped two, grabbing four beers instead of two, instead of the two Bowcut had asked for. On the house, he said. Bowcut dropped the neck of the broken bottle he was holding and scooped up the, near, the new beer bottles. He nodded to his brother, who lowered the gun. Bowcut stepped over Slim and followed his brother out the door. I went to the screen and watched as they headed through the tiny dirt lot and into the trees, disappearing like shadows at dusk. Next up, we have David Powell reading an excerpt from his upcoming story, One Step Too Far. Georgia, and uh, I've been writing for about three years up there. And uh, this is a, the beginning of a story called uh, One Step Too Far. Brett hammered the softball bat against the doorframe she and Trey had handpicked when they were fixing up the historic farmhouse. Antique chestnut. The door itself was fake antique because they'd had to cut a cat door in. I told you not to come over anymore. We are done. Understand me? She hammered again like the door was a boy's head and she could pound sense into it. Come on, you've said that before. Yes, purred, open the door now. I'll call the police this time, I swear. She thought she succeeded in keeping any hitch out of her voice. I don't think so. You're the one who says we've got to be secret. Age never mattered to me. Don't try to sweet talk me, she said, not caring that her voice cracked in anger this time. Not after what you did. What did I do? Of course, he'd deny it. Lying men, her ex-husband Trey had been at it longer. That was the only difference between them. At least take this weed, then said, you paid for it. <laughs> I told you I'm through with that. I'm cleaning up my act. Everything's spun out of control, and I want my life back. I thought you and me were reclaiming your life. He paused. Have you been talking to Ansley? I can talk to whoever I want to. I thought you didn't care what all those bitches thought. <laughs> I'm living life in the hell with what the town thinks. Isn't that what you said? She noticed that he was careful not to be too mean <laughs> in his imitation of her voice. She flexed and unflexed her hands on the bat's handle. Yep, he knew way too much about her. He was 17, too young to talk to her this way. He didn't understand what a mother has to worry about. Deline deserves better than you, she said quietly. Deline, what are you talking about? Now listen, she said, I've got a softball bat and I'll bash your head if you try to get in here. <laughs> Silence for a moment. Slow pitch or fast pitch? <laughs> <laughs> what? Which kind of bat? They're not the same. What does it matter? He sighed. She could almost see him shaking his head. Slow pitch is heavier bat is all. It packs a punch, but it's harder to swing. 
Slow then, all right. The lead played slow pitch. They said she was the best pitcher they ever saw. Then the damn ladies league decided fast pitch was the big thing. That bunch has a stranglehold in our cultural life, he said. <laughs> she couldn't continue talking to him. She shouldn't. But the way they cut her daughter out still made her furious. Naked girls play slow pitch was sexist. Oh no, their little girls were all going to be CEOs like their mothers hadn't stayed rich playing lap dog for their country club bastard husbands. <laughs> like that son of a bitch that threw you over, he said. She felt the heat rising into her face from her neck. That's how you could tell how immature he was. Always going one step too far. Too enraged to speak. She smacked the bat against her palm, took it back to her room, tossed it on the bed. She pulled the leather case from the closet, fumbled around for a box of shells, stomped back to the kitchen. She eased the Beretta silver pigeon out of its case. I put the bat away, she said. You know what I've got now? She broke the shotgun open, held it in the crook of her arm, reaching with her other hand for the shells, dropped one in each barrel, closed it with a solid, satisfying click. You hear that? I just loaded my Beretta over and under. She pointed the shotgun at the door. And he laughed. He actually laughed. Brett pulled into her shooting stance without thinking, aiming low to the right of the cat door just to scare him, and squeezed the trigger. The hole popped open like magic and a spray of wood chips flew back into the kitchen. He wasn't laughing now. <laughs> Brett popped out the empty cartridges and reloaded. You want to laugh some more? She said, I got a whole box of shells. No sound at all. Maybe he'd gotten the message and run off. That'd be fine. Sort of. She'd really rather see his terrified face at 17-year-old smugness blasted away. She wanted him to admit that he'd gone too far seducing her daughter. Dent? Maybe he was playing possum to get her to open the door. She leaned the shotgun against the door frame, got down on her knees to look through the cat door. Something was stuck halfway through it. She lifted the door, pulled out the something, which turned out to be a baggie of round green buds, a whole ounce, just like she'd asked for, just to help her few remaining friends to supplement her income. She wasn't going to use child support to keep up this house, and Trey had found all kinds of ways to whittle away her alimony. She'd been stupid to marry a lawyer, and insanely stupid to let him file for divorce as the plaintiff. <laughs> Are you out there, Dent? She called through the flap. I'm opening the door, but I've reloaded, so don't try anything funny. Don't try anything funny. She got up from the floor, cradled the shotgun in her right arm, unlocked the door. Dent lay sprawled six feet from the door, a red bloom spreading on his chest. Brett's chest seized up. She slammed the door shut, trying to force rest. It was impossible. She'd aimed low and to the side. At most, a few ricochet pellets would have sprayed his legs. She opened the door, calculated the angle, looking for impact pits on the stones. Nothing near but the boy's feet. He couldn't have landed that way unless... Then she saw the limestone grip on his knees. The stupid bastard had been kneeling on the walk. Rick had pulled the trigger just as Dent was putting her weave through the cat door. <laughs> Brett slammed the door shut, hesitated, snatched up the baggie. She'd have to call the police. Eventually, she'd be stupid to try burying the body by herself. She couldn't see herself cutting it up in the bathtub like Tony Soprano. She imagined dense, vacant eyes staring up at her from her bathtub. Oh my God, she shrieked. Her stomach flipped over like a malevolent otter. 
She stumbled on the balcony and stopped halfway there. She didn't need to puke, she needed to think. She plunked to the floor in the hallway and looked up at the sketchy assortment of pictures and blank spaces on the wall. Trey had taken all the ones he wanted, mostly of Deline, none that included Brick. Certainly not this one, or their first weekend together with the doves they'd shot at her uncle's plantation lined up on the ground. What a pair, smiling and clueless, shotguns propped jauntily on hits. Brick couldn't suppress a chuckle. The picture showed the same Beretta she had just used to shoot her teenage lover. And fourth, we have Andy Davidson reading a little bit from his upcoming novel, The Boatman's Daughter, which releases in February. Late addition to the roster. So I don't have any books to sell tonight. This is the only copy. Uh, and it's promised to David Walters over here. So if after I'm done, you like what you hear and you want to slip him a 50 or a 100, I will take a cut. Uh, this book comes out in February. So it's not out yet, actually. But um, it's called The Boatman's Daughter. And it's the story of a young woman named Miranda Crabtree. And Miranda gets swept up into some dark dealings on the river in Arkansas where she lives. And uh, in the passage that I'm going to read, uh, Miranda and her father, the boatman, have been tasked with a midnight errand. <clears throat> the spring night grew hushed, save for the far off mutter of the coming storm which had been threatening since twilight, black clouds like a fleet of warships, making ready to cannonade the land with fire, water, wind, and ice. Hours before, when Hiram woke her, Miranda had been dreaming of stumbling through woods and brambles onto a path that brought her out of the trees and into a clearing, where the land sloped up to a hilltop draped in flowering kudzu, little white blossoms aglow in the moonlight. Cradled in her arms, a black bullhead catfish she had only just pulled slick and dead from the bayou. Atop the hill, the witch's cabin on stilts, one yellow flame burning in a window, Miranda went up the crooked red mud path, up the wide board steps of the porch, and into the cabin where the old witch stood waiting. She dropped the fish in the old woman's bread bowl, and the witch took her filleting knife from her apron and slit the fish's belly. Miranda put her thumbs in the fish's gills to lift it, and the innards slopped out in a purple heap. The old witch slung the guts into her boxwood stove, where they hissed and popped in the fire, and the dead fish heaved in Miranda's hands, came alive, began to scream. It screamed with the voice of a child. Then Hiram's hand on her shoulder, shaking her. In the John boat, they had fetched the witch from her cabin on the bayou, and from there upriver to that ugly, paint-worn manse. The front door of the plantation house stood open to let in the cool, blustery air. Last fall's leaves skittered over the boards like giant palmetto bugs as inside the witch went about her ancient trade behind a shut bedroom door. Across the gravel lane, Hiram stood in the bald, root-gnarled yard of a low shotgun house, talking softly to a man who was not quite five feet tall. The little man listened intently, head down, hands in his pockets. Windows of the other five shacks that stood beneath the trees were lit, a few men smoking anxiously between the clapboard dwellings, just beyond the reach of their own bare bulb porch lights. Vague, grown-up shapes to Miranda, who was only 14. 
Within the manse, a woman screamed, freezing every soul who heard. Another scream, the wail of something deep and true torn loose, lost to the dark. Hiram and the dwarf went charging past Miranda into the foyer, only to halt in shock at the foot of the stairs. Miranda pushed between them and saw an old man, all legs and elbows in black suit pants and a bloody white shirt, stagger out of the bedroom to sit like a broken toy at the top of the stairs. He clutched in his hands an object, something Miranda could not see, forearms red with blood up to his cuffs, which were rolled at the elbows. Miranda felt her father's hand on her shoulder, and when she looked up, she saw Hiram's face gone pale as chalk. The little man to her right was stout and strong, but she glimpsed it on his face, too. Horror. The witch came solemnly out of the bedroom, carrying the bread bowl. She passed the old man on the stairs, whose eyes never strayed from whatever faraway place they had fixed. Blood dripping on the boards between his scuffed wingtip shoes. Hiram pushed Miranda toward the front door, and she glimpsed off the foyer in the downstairs parlor a man sitting on an antique sofa. He was young, slim, handsome a lit cigarette between full lips and a glass of amber liquid in hand. He wore a gun, a badge. He winked a cornflower blue eye as Miranda scooted past. So now we turn over to our second slew of authors uh, to come through. Uh, first up is going to be Nathan Ballingrude, who's going to be reading a little bit from The Butcher's Table, which is one of the short stories found in his novel, Wounds. Uh, and it's being filmed right now as a series called Monsterland, which will come out on Hulu next year. Yes. And, thanks. and the other book is called Wounds, Six Stories from the Border of Hell. And uh, that one, one of the stories has been made into a movie also called Wounds, which you can see on Hulu right now if you want to. But tonight I'm going to read from a story here called The Butcher's Table. It is kind of an over-the-top story featuring diabolists and pirates in a, in a, in a voyage to hell. And uh, it's kind of like my love letter to EC Horror Comics and the Hammer Studio films of the 60s and 70s. And there uh, two brief scenes. Both of them involve uh, things called carrying angels, which are uh, these kind of like holy emissaries pursuing our protagonists. <clears throat> Hours after Butcher's Table had left, the carrying angels arrived in Cordova. There were four of them. They emerged from a lantern-smoked alleyway, building themselves out of shadows and burnt rags. Seven feet tall, their thin bodies wrapped in fluttering black cloth, they listed back and forth as they walked, their bones creaking like the rigging of ships. Their faces jutted forward and hooked two spangled beaks, their eyes burned like red cinders, trailing smoke through the rain. They stalked the avenues of the town with deliberation, keeping to the shadows, sending those who witnessed them shrieking and scattering like frightened gulls. Some stopped and fired a few wild shots before running. The carrying angels were oblivious, their bodies accepting the violence the way a corpse accepts the worm. They swung their great heads at each juncture of road and alley, lifting their snouts and huffing deep breaths as they trapped the scent of the quarry. The trail wended down toward the, the, the docks. The town had erupted in panic, Word of the angel's presence had spread fast. Narrow lanes were choked with men fleeing for their ships. Pirates and sailors careened drunkenly, lurching, stumbling, trampling the fallen. 
Throughout the town, panicked men shot and stabbed at shadows, and the road to the sea was marked by the bodies of the dead and the dying. The angels came upon a fallen man lying across their path, the back of his head a smoking hole with his brains festooned across the packed earth. The stick of it made them drunk, and they permitted themselves a brief respite, punched around the glorious fountain of scent, this unexpected confection. They ate with a grateful reverence, the sound of wet meat and cracking bone rising in syncopation with the driving rain. <coughs> Most of the townsfolk stayed inside, shuttering the windows and locking the doors. Some followed the pirates to the death to the docks, forgetting in their fear the true nature of these men, and remembering only when they were beaten back or shot as they tried to climb the gangplanks to safety. The ships were alight with lanterns, the rigging was a crawl with sailors making ready for the sea. Boats were dropped from the side, towing the vessels away from the port. Gun smoke hazed the air. The gloom of violence was a grace upon the town. The angels walked in their slow, swaying gait through it all, like four tall priests proceeding safely through hell, confident in their faith. The scent ended at the docks. The lotus head had been taken to sea. It was a small thing to sneak aboard a ship. The carrying angels dissolved into rags and dust, blowing like so much garbage in the wind, carrying over the water into the rat-thronged hold of one of the several, ship, several pirate ships called Retribution. They settled amidst the refuse there, lying as still as the dead. The captain of the ship was a hard old man named Bonnie Mungo. He'd seen creatures like this once, several years ago, in a half-sunken stone church he'd stumbled across in a Florida swamp. There had only been two. They killed most of the men he'd been with and wore another like clothing, too small to properly fit. Catching a glimpse of them now, he was moved by an extravagant fear. Once retribution achieved some distance from land, he ordered it to turn about, offering its broadside to the town. At his command, the ship fired its full complement of guns in a devastating volley, sending cannonballs smashing through weak wooden walls and bringing whole buildings to the ground. Another ship took inspiration from this and fired as well. Within minutes, Cordova and his luckless residents were reduced to broken wood and smoke and blood. The pirates, satisfied by their own efficiency, rounded out to sea, disappearing into a curtain of rain. The carrying angels slept in the retribution's hold. The sense trails arose even over the sea, and they were sure of their way. I'm going to skip ahead several pages and, and return to the ship a little later to find out what's happened to Fort Bonnie Mungo. Fifty leagues to the southeast, what remained of Captain Bonnie Mungo stalked the decks of the retribution, calculating the time it would take to catch the butcher's table. The captain existed as a fluttering scrap of thought in a body that had once been his, but was now broken and expanded to house the carrying angel that lived there. The bones in his face had unlocked and pushed outward to accommodate the angel's presence. The flesh was swollen and bruised black. Occasionally some pocket of trapped blood would find its way out and trickle down his face in an oily stream. When the captain issued orders to his crew, his Scottish burr pushed through altered vocal cords to create a sound that terrified them and left them wholly subservient. The other three angels had surrendered their hosts as soon as the crew had been tamed and now roosted in the masts, black silhouettes fluttering against the hot sky, occasionally drifting down to feed on one of the bodies spread like a red feast on the decks. The crew had been trimmed to its barest essentials. Everyone else was provender. Bonnie Mungo retained enough of himself to remember Scotland to remember standing atop a seaside cliff and watching the ships leave that cold rock for adventures under a foreign sun. 
He remembered a childhood spent thieving from sh the shops, waylaying passing carriages and unfettering the fops inside from the bags of coin, weighing them down, the years spent in and out of jails, escaping the hangman's noose long enough to finally find passage aboard a ship full of bloody-minded young men like himself, brothers all. He, backed, he hacked and beat and bought his way to a position of prominence among them, to a captaincy, to respect and fear, rolling home thousands of miles from the fog-clapped cliffs of Scotland, in a part of the world where the sun hammered its devil's eye into hot sand in the clamoring Spanish, Spanish ports. Bonnie Munger retained enough of himself to remember all of that, and to provide the angelic cockroach splitting his body like a too small jacket, with the requisite knowledge to keep enough men alive to sail his ship and to point it in the direction of his prey. After that, he and all the remainder of his crew would just be gruel in the trough. The scent of the lotus head drew them across the waves. It was getting closer, but the rag that was Bonnie Mungo knew that it was not quickly enough. And because he knew it, the angel knew it too. It spoke a word that fractured the jaw of its host, registering the pain as a curiosity. Upon hearing the word, one of the roosting angels took flight, rearing against the sun in a flare of black feathers, and plummeted into the sea where it sank from sight like a corpse weighted with stones. The angel descended quickly, a dark feathered ball, until it passed beyond the reach of sunlight, and the water grew cold and black. It fell more deeply yet, oblivious to the atmospheres pressing against its, against its body, its eyes pulling from the lightless battles darting shapes, shifting mountains of flesh. It found a host down there, it made a bloody gash and wriggled into it, and filled the beast with its holy spirit. Skin split in fissures along the length of its form, and it jetted forward with fresh purpose, its tentacles trailing in a tight formation behind it, its red, saucer-shaped eyes incandescent with hunger. And eventually, crashes and bad things happen. <laughs> Next up is Roger Johns, who's actually a relatively uh, unknown author to me, uh, reading excerpts from his two novels uh, in his Wallace Hartman Mysteries uh, series. The first one called Dark River Rising, uh, the second called River of Secrets, uh, and he's definitely one that's going to be going on my TBR now uh, based off this reading. Good evening, I'm Roger Johns. I'm from somewhere between Atlanta and Alabama, out of And I write the Wallace Hartman Mysteries, which is set in South Louisiana, which is where I'm from. I'd like to read a short passage from each. Uh, one is grim and one is lighthearted. So which one should I start with? <laughs> this is the uh, beginning of uh, the second book, uh, River of Darkness, River of Secrets. When he heard the key slide into the lock, he reached inside his shirt and ran a finger along the smooth edge of the tough plastic loop. Heavy footfalls on the hardwood floors told him one person, a sizable individual, had entered the kitchen through the side door. Expletives followed by a muttered self-rebuke about having forgotten something confirmed the new arrival's identity. Herbert Mariano was home. The sound of a case being zippered open along with the scuff and rustle of items shifted around on a table, pinpointed Herbert's location in the dining area of the large front room. Then the steady rhythmic ticking of computer keys started. People could be so vulnerable when they were under the spell of some routine activity, something that put them at ease and commanded their undivided attention. But he knew that now was not the magic moment. Herbert's booming voice broke the quiet. It was the call. 
Ordinarily, this would have been an excellent time to shine. <clears throat> Pedestrians were known to step into fast-moving traffic once they became mesmerized by a call, but this was Herbert's nightly Skype session with his wife. You look lovely, Herbert told him. Yes, especially without your makeup. Using a loud conversation as cover, he rose from his hiding place inside the spare bedroom and moved toward the hallway and waited. The intimate patter continued for several minutes. Once the conversation ended, the keystrokes resumed, along with the soft sound of easy listening music and the shuffle of papers. After several more minutes, the time felt right. He emerged from the dark room, taking care to avoid the creaky floorboards he had discovered in the hall while he waited for the man of the hour to return from a hard day of screwing the taxpayers. Herbert sat at the dining table, facing away, staring intently at the laptop. As he closed the distance between them, he slid his hand inside the front of his shirt. The floor groaned under his final step. Herbert stiffened and turned. He dropped the loop over Herbert's head and yanked hard on the free end. <laughs> one is uh, from the point of view of the main character herself, Wallace Hartman, who is the homicide detective that inhabits both of these books. Are there any Catholics in the room? <laughs> this is for you. <laughs> it was dim and quiet inside the church with that middle of the week empty feeling. Fresco saints glared down from the vaulted ceiling and a vague scent of old incense laced the air. Faint sounds produced solemn echoes. As a young man emerged from the confessional with his head hung reverentially low, Wallace took his place in the penitent stall. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been at least three popes since my last confession. <laughs> Wallace, you have to stop doing this, the priest scolded without conviction. Well, maybe I've sinned and I need forgiveness, she teased. I'm certain you have, and you do, but I'm your little brother. If this confession is as impure as your last one, I'll have to go to confession myself just for listening to it. <laughs> oh, come on, Lex. Aren't you supposed to give me absolution before you dish out the grief? Well, aren't you supposed to actually confess your sins first? Well, I don't want to scandalize you. What if I just go through them my commandment number? You know, I could say I violated the third commandment three times, and I rang up one number four and a couple of sixes and so on. <laughs> Well, I'm on a tight schedule. Just add them up and give me the time. <laughs> but without some detail, how will you know if I'm being truthful and whether I'm truly sorry? Well, that's a good point. Are you really here for confession, or is this something else? Something else, she confessed. I just haven't seen you for a while, that's all. Lex and Wallace and their older brother Martin had been those storybook siblings parents dreamt about. Adult life <coughs> took them in different directions, but they had still seen each other often and spoken almost daily. Martin's death ended that. What were once naturally and frequently intersecting orbits came to require effort after Martin was killed. The fact that it took effort made Wallace and Lex self-conscious. Somehow neither had noticed until he was gone that Martin was the linchpin in the trio. Now they went long periods without contact. Eventually guilt would trump self-consciousness and one of them would call the other. They would make plans to get together and sometimes they followed through. Uh, Father Rudansky from Texarkana, we went to seminary together. He's passing through tomorrow on his way to visit his father in Pascagoula. He's stopping by for lunch. Why don't you join us? 
Well, that sounds like a class reunion. I don't want to get in the way, she said, disappointed at being offered only third wheel status. <laughs> On second thought, she backtracked. That sounds fine. The presence of the other priest might keep things lively. What time? Uh, come by around 11. <coughs> when Wallace didn't respond, Lex pushed. I can tell there's something else on your mind. It's nothing, she said. I'm sure she was ready to expose her feelings. Uh, does this nothing have a name, Lex asked? Mason, but it's not what you think. I'm not thinking anything. And in any event, what you think is all that's important. I don't know what I think. I've got mixed emotions, Wallace said. I'm afraid you might be complicated. Are you sure you're not just still afraid? Period. Lex, must you always cut straight to the heart of the matter? A quiet hum sounded from Wallace's phone. You have your phone on? In confession? Well, sorry, it's my Fess Up Online app, in case you had a really long line. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow, she said, as she slipped out of the confessional and darted through the side door of the church. Wallace Hartman, she whispered into her phone. This is David Basso. It's playtime. Where? The F&T on Gorman Street. And listen, it's such an old case and such a weird charge. The magistrate wouldn't give us a no-knock warrant, which means you can't just go busting in. So keep in mind that Stacky can be a kitten, but he knows how to play rough, too. Don't let your guard down. Now we have Emily Carpenter, who'll be reading an excerpt from her novel, Until the Day I Die. Uh, and there'll also be a secondary uh, reading from Emily. Well, she'll be reading a little bit from one of her upcoming novels entitled Dove. I'm Emily Carpenter, and okay, we have to adjust things. <laughs> um, first, I'm going to read from my current book that's out now called Until the Day I Die. Um, so the main character in this book, Erin, um, has lost her husband and she's not handling the grieving process very well. So her friends and family stage an intervention and they sent her to a very posh island rehab kind of spa situation. So she can take some time to herself and kind of push the reset button and figure out what's going on. Um, meanwhile, there's some nefarious activities going on back at home with her business um, and her daughter discovers this and um, kind of has to save the day. So this is Erin. When she gets to the island, she realizes things are not quite as it seems. Um, she has to go on a wilderness trek um, <laughs> that she is not prepared for. At the waterfall, I find Jessalyn and Deirdre stripped down to their sports bras and underwear, ducking in and out of the pool beneath it like a couple of kids. I kick off my boots and jump into the pool, clothes and all, surfacing to the sound of their laughter. Locke ambles up, pulls off his boots too, and settles on the edge of an overhanging rock. Get in! Deirdre yells at Locke. Oh no, he says. I'm the lifeguard. He seems to be zeroed in on me though, as I dunk all the way under the water. 
bad move, Aaron, he says when I surface. You never want to get your clothes wet in the jungle. Never know how long it's going to take to dry them out. But I don't want to take off my clothes in front of him. I'll be fine, I say. Just looking out for you. Don't want you to have to do this all over again. He shoots me a half smile, but I avert my eyes. And through the clear water, study my hands as they sink into the black sand. Half of me, the stupid half, enjoys the attention. The other half of me thinks this is just his idea of a game of psychological chicken. Well, fine. If it is, it's wasted on me. I'm not that into tense sex. Deirdre paddles up to us, leaning back in the shallow water, preening for lock. What's on the program today, she asks. Kill and roast a parrot. Make a sundial out of twigs. Scale the waterfall with our bare hands. The last one, Locke says. You're going to climb that waterfall. She turns to ogle the sheer cliff rising up beside the foaming waterfall. Jesus, really? No, you dimble, he says. You think I'm going to haul your asses up there with no ropes or safety equipment? Not likely. He leans back, closes his eyes, and lifts his face to the sun. I'm going to sit here and let you ladies entertain me. Deirdre giggles, but I keep my face down. It's then that I notice on the sandy bottom beneath the warm, clear water a blue plastic red tie. Water splashes me and my head jerks up. Come on, Jessalyn shouts at Deirdre and me and splashes up again. Deirdre paddles back to her. Go have fun, Aaron, Locke says. You're too uptight. His phone rings and he answers it with a, yo, what's the word? I look down at the clear water. The bread tie is resting beside what looks like a small white bone with bits of something translucent and stringy clinging to it. I move my hand a centimeter closer, stirring the sand into a cloud under the surface of the water. A chicken bone, maybe, from someone's picnic. When the sand settles, though, I see that it doesn't really look like a chicken bone. It's just the length of the last joint of my forefinger, and it looks human. I'm really excited about it, and I had it all pulled up, and now it's like disappeared. All right, here it is. Okay, um, so that book is out now, and this book comes out next year, October. So try to keep it in your mind if you like this <laughs> reading for almost an entire year. Okay. <laughs> uh, so this is Dove. This was how she knew the end was near. At nighttime, after she'd gone to bed and begun the welcome voyage toward sleep, her friends would appear. They fluttered the curtains and stirred the dust, bringing with them the smell of long ago faraway places. When she was young, she would have thought them ghosts. But at the clear-eyed age of 98, she knew better. They were only memories, flickers of her past, the stories she'd kept hidden for so long that she almost didn't recognize the players when they re-entered the stage. 
The visits, she liked to think of them as visits, had started in the summer when she still lived in the Alabama house across the road from Pritchard Hospital. In July, she'd seen her mother, the major, and Dell. Then in August, Ethel and Irma and Jimmy Singley, also Old Steadfast and Arthur. Come that September, when the business with the Honeysuckle Girls had come to a head, Jen, Polly, and Trick showed up laughing and fiercely beautiful. They filled the room with the smell of wine and she was glad to see them. Others appeared, but it was her first night back in the California house that brought the most welcome guest, her greatest friend and staunchest ally, Charles. He sat on his side of their bed and sang to her. She kept his eyes on his strong, safe profile until sleep descended. She was glad to see them all. Their presence brought her comfort. Some had not treated her well. Some had even been cruel, but she didn't mind. That was one of the many blessings of old age, the softening of memory, melting away of grudges. Forgiveness was no longer something to strive for. Now it entered the room through an open window. Then one chilly night toward the end of October, a new visitor appeared. Dove sat up, awakened that night by a dream she couldn't remember. She looked at the clock, but she left her glasses outside and couldn't see the time. She could see the shadow man who sat motionless in the slipper chair beside her dressing table. He watched her with eyes that glittered. You, she said. You shouldn't have run, Ruth, he said. You brought so much sorrow by doing that, so much pain. I'm sorry. It certainly didn't make up for what she'd done, but it was all she could think to say. He rose then, letting the faint light fall over him, and when he held up a length of faded pink ribbon, it seemed to glow from some inner source. You belonged to him, he said. You always belong to him. She knew this wasn't true, but it was pointless to argue. He'd spoken with the zeal of a convert, and that was a thing she was well acquainted with. As soon as she realized this, she also realized something else, something she should have known sooner from the moment she opened her eyes. The figure in the dark wasn't a ghost or an ephemeral memory from her past, but a real flesh and blood man. And he hadn't come as a friend. He'd come for revenge. Now we have Matt Weber, who's going to be reading a little bit from his new novel entitled Bobcats. Uh, Matt's actually another uh, unknown author to me, but definitely will be going on the TBR uh, now that I've had a chance to listen to him speak uh, and listen to him read his story. Try to keep this uh, brief, but riveting. <laughs> My name's Matt Weber. I write home improvement stories by day and scary stories by night. 
I'm about to read an excerpt from uh, my latest novel. It's unpublished. I'm currently shopping it around. It's called Bobcats. Um, I'm pitching Bobcats as a coming-of-age tale of survival. The uh, story centers around a group of 12-year-old boys who call themselves the Bobcats. They embark on an ill-fated camping trip where they cross paths with a couple of career criminals who are in the process of stashing some bodies. Whenever this happens, the bad guys decide they need to rub out the witnesses. In this scene I'm about to read, our two villains meet for the first time. The backstory is that our point of view character, C.D. Benson, owes crime boss Mr. Heidecker a lot of money. To work off the debt, he is forced to be the driver for a notorious half-savage contract killer known as the Cleaver. <laughs> the Cleaver is kind of a living legend in the underworld who nobody, not even the hardened criminals, want to work with. And so this scene is the pickup. <clears throat> CD brought the Escalade to a stop and shifted in the park. After winding down miles of broken backcountry asphalt, he finally happened upon the crumbling Civil War era graveyard that marked his turn down a long, desolate dirt path. Now he let the engine idle in front of what could only be the home of the fabled man of the hour, for no sane person would inhabit this godforsaken dump hidden in a clearing within the thick forest walls. A sane person might have installed a sidewalk or decorated the place with shrubbery, maybe planted a flower bed or stuck some crappy pink flamingos in the ground. But here the ghastly shapes that hung from the trees or stood wired to tall posts looked like the forgotten ruins of an ancient pagan tribe. Bones and metal, branches and vines, twisted and sculpted into ten-foot scarecrows and swooping winged beasts. Among a junkyard of corroded farm implements and bundles of baling wire, dark, hulking humanoids posed with groping claws and antlered heads. Flanking the yard were slender sentries towering with rusty iron skeletons, hoop steel ribs, and dried kudzu capes. Man-sized spiders crafted with bent rebar legs and railroad spike fangs creeped over the lawn and peered from behind trees. As they studied the macabre statuary, C.D. had a nagging impulse to throw the Ford in reverse and drive like hell. Staying here simply could not end well. But to leave would seal his fate. He could only run so far, and Mr. Heidegger was known for his uncanny ability to reach a man anywhere. Forget Whitey and Blackie, if C.D. were to split, Heidegger would send the cleaver after him. He could guarantee it. He lit another cigarette and stared at the house which showed no sign of electricity or plumbing. Built of cinder block and moldering wood, the cleaver's home was a sparse, square structure with mortared walls and a patched corrugated metal roof. A scattering of flat creek bed stone lay around the perimeter as a rudimentary patio, and near the dented steel front door, the carcasses of three skinless animals hung drying from the eaves. Flies buzzed around the meat, Chickens pecked the dirt beneath them, and a few goats searched for weeds at the edge of the plot. Shit, C.D. muttered. The choice of whether to bring his gun was a tricky one. He'd rarely felt more threatened in his life, but if the man who lived here saw him packing, he might shoot first and ask questions later. Shit, he said again, then pulled his pistol from its holster and slid it beneath the seat. It had always been mostly for show anyway. Sitting behind that steering wheel, C.D. dreaded every ticking second. 
He took a deep breath and opened the door. He climbed out, flicked away his cigarette, and walked with feigned confidence toward the house. His every instinct told him he was being watched. There would be no need to knock. He took Heidecker's letter from the pocket of his sports coach, unfolded it, and held it high so whoever was watching could see it clearly. I was sent by Mr. Heidecker, he announced. This is his letter. I'm supposed to pick up the cleaver. I'm the driver. A faint whisper passed Seedy's ear. The paper twitched in his hand and a speeding arrow speared through and plunked into a nearby tree trunk. His heart stopped for the duration of five beats. CD was sure of it. The arrow had missed his skull by mere inches. He peered over his body to make sure it all remained intact and then re released the frozen breath. Jesus Christ, was it necessary? This he thought, but dared not speak aloud. Scanning the house, he saw nobody in the windows. He waited where he stood, too petrified to move. After a small eternity, the steel door of the house opened and out stepped the biggest, grisliest creature Seedy had ever seen outside a zoo. Clutching a crossbow, the man was a monster indeed. A mountain of muscle and hair emerged from the doorway and stood obscuring the entrance behind him. Like some fur-covered Sasquatch, a gray beard caped his chest and joined a colorless mane which draped over his protruding brow and massive shoulders. Standing not just tall and broad, but enormous in scope, he looked like something from a dark fable. From somewhere in that tangled pelt, the man stared at C.D. through shadowed eyes, studying him and weighing judgment. C.D. swallowed, but his throat felt lined with sand. Again, he raised Heidegger's paper like some magical totem that might grant him immunity from being sentenced to death. The beast that was the cleaver huffed once, ducked back inside the murk of his house, closing the door firmly behind him. See, he waited for him, patiently, for a very long time. And lastly, we have The Man, the Myth, the Legend. I'm just kidding. Uh, fantastic novelist Robert McCammon. Uh, reading a brand new short story entitled DST Incorporated. Uh, actually got the entire short story uh, popped into this podcast. I hope you guys really enjoy it. Uh, and again, thanks you guys for tuning in, and we'll try to do this again next year. He had Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, Robert B. Parker, Elmore Leonard, Ed McBain, all these great writers, and I was a... 12, 13 year old kid, and I wanted to read everything. He also had Robert McCammon on there. And to me, that's just kind of neat to have him here reading tonight. Um, so that's what I want to introduce is uh, Robert McCammon. He's a legend, and um, he's going to read for us tonight. Oh, hey, everybody. Uh, the, only, the greater thing. Best, best, best thing about being with other writers is it gets to be also with, with readers. So thank you very much for being here. You guys deserve a big, big hand for being here. I really, really uh, also, I, this light right here, I need this light in my office. I feel like the, the woman in the, uh, in the pickup truck commercial. I love it. I love it. I need to take that home. I don't think I can work that out. Anyway, uh, I'm going to read um, a new short story called uh, DST Incorporated. Love that light. Okay. Are we good? Yeah. 
So at 9.30 on a night in October, Doug Jennings stood where he'd been told to stand, in a Newark, New Jersey parking lot surrounded by a chain-link fence topped with barbed wire. The only way in or out past the credit card reader, around him a few stores showing lights, but mostly the dark buildings of the city in despair. Empty shelves, walls covered with graffiti, the language of the angry and dispossessed. He stood as he'd been told, facing the trunk of his car, which he pulled into the space after removing the orange traffic cone he'd been told to expect. In the inside pocket of his jacket was a plain envelope holding $5,000 in $100 bills. He waited. In another five minutes or so, he heard a car pull in. He'd been told to stand as he was. The car stopped. Two doors opened and closed. Turn around, Mr. Jennings, said the voice of the young man, somewhat muffled. He obeyed. The two men who parked their black Mercedes right behind his car wore the kind of Halloween mask that you can see through, but you can't make out the faces like trying to see through smoke. They both wore jeans, black jackets, and dark colored baseball caps. Password, the one who'd spoken said. Attack, Doug answered. The second one came forward. The card, he said, and Doug gave it up. Both men were wearing black gloves. Money was the next command. Doug also gave up the envelope. Okay, said the first one. He waited while the second man counted the cash with a small flashlight as the lot's own lights were on the dim side of dim. All here was the verdict. Listen, Doug said. I mean, I have to ask, how do I know there are gonna be results? We guarantee, if you don't like the immediate results, you can meet us here night after tomorrow at the same time. You'll get a refund of half your money. Okay, but I wanna be clear on this. I don't want violence, that's not what I'm after. We know what you're after, said the second man. That's our business. We're done here, the first man said. Without another word, they returned to the Mercedes. As they drove away, Doug got a quick look at the license plate, Michigan. He pulled his own car out of the space, got out and returned the traffic cone as it, as it had been explained to him he should do. Then he paid for his quick parking time with his credit card to open the metal security gate and started to drive back to Manhattan, where he lived with his girlfriend, Clarissa, on West 39th Street. I'm doing the right thing, he told himself as he drove. Yes, for sure I am. I couldn't let that kind of thing go. Couldn't let that bastard off the hook. No way, no freaking way. As he thought about it, his hands tightened on the steering wheel because the anger was still so fresh. It started this morning at his office. Cornucopia, 50 varieties of popcorn and counting. Pop, pop, pop. Check it for you overnight, wherever you are. The ad agency got Angelina Jolie to do the TV spots. She loved popcorn. Who knew? <laughs> but that bastard, Jason Shepley, screwed him over. Got the accounting and management job Doug had been working to get for over a year. That Shepley bastard had been throwing lies about Doug here and there. Oh, yeah, it was Shepley all right. About Doug's drinking on the job, which was absolutely a damned lie. And other things. And Shepley was a kind of slick, smooth, yaley type of guy who could sell himself to Mark Urban, the accounting head. And now Doug was stuck in his cubicle where Shepley got a name on the door plus a ton of extra money. And Doug and Clarissa lost their chance to get a better apartment. Sure, things like that happened. It was business. 
In a corporation like that, you had to step on people or you got crushed. Doug had managed to keep Link Alcott and James Selena from moving up, but why not? They weren't sharp enough, so they needed to stay where they were. He had raged about Sheffley to a number of people he trusted and spilled out all his bloody guts of anger. You had to trust somebody sometime, even in a cutthroat corporation. So this morning, suddenly on his desk, in his cubicle, he found a white business card with the plain title of DST Incorporated. And on the back, somebody had written in black flare, attack, with a Manhattan area code phone number underneath. He had gone about his work, but kept looking at the card, DST Incorporated, attack, the phone number. What the hell was it, who had put it there? He stood up and did the old look around. Jane glanced quickly at him. Roger did too. Ellen the same, but Link ignored him. So who? In this office or another one? And why? It was after lunch when his curiosity got the best of him. He dialed the number on his cell. Password, the woman who answered said. Doug hesitated. She hung up. Doug sat there for a while thinking. Then he dialed the number again. Password, she said. He hesitated. She said, this number will be out of service in five seconds. Attack, Doug heard himself say, as quietly as his nervous throat would allow. I'm holding the card. Attack, is that right? Hold, she said. He waited again. The music that played was ACDC's Highway to Hell. <laughs> name? A man came on the line. Doug, not your name, Mr. Jennings. The target. Target? What do you mean, target? Who do you want destroyed? What? You call Destroy Incorporated. Give me the target in five seconds or this call is ended and your password, your password invalid. Destroy? I mean, how? Our business. Goodbye, Mr. Jason Sheffley. Doug <laughs> blurted it out. That's who I want destroyed. Sheffley. Oh, okay, now is this a freaking joke or what? Public figure, charity, or individual. What? A, a guy, just a guy. I'll call back, and he was gone. That was one crazy load of crap, Doug thought. Geez, Destroy Incorporated? Sure. His cell buzzed. Doug saw the cell reported, unknown caller. He hesitated, and suddenly he was both afraid and in a way strangely euphoric. He answered. Doug Jennings, he said more quietly than before. Your instructions, it was the deeper voice of a different man. He told Doug where to go at 9.30 that night, what to do and what to bring. $5,000? Doug had to hold back a laugh. Are you kidding me? Is this a ripoff or what? You want Jason Shepley, who works in your department at Cornucopia and lives in apartment 14 at 219 West 76th Street, destroyed. You have your reasons. 5,000 is our standard rate for an individual, not a public figure. If you don't want you to go further, hold it, hold it, wait. $5,000 for what? To destroy Jason Sheffley, utterly and completely. You mean like assassinate? Huh? There are better ways. <laughs> like what? I won't ask you how you make your butterscotch popcorn. You won't ask how we make things happen. <laughs> Butterscotch popcorn, Doug thought. Their best seller. This guy had already scoped out the company. Are we go or no? The man asked. 
On the drive to the apartment after the Newark meeting, Doug was trying to figure out how to explain 5,000 bucks removed from his and Clarissa's joint account. Another point of irritation, big time, was that Clarissa earned more than he did as a graphic designer at Macy's, and that money going to Sheffley would have brought him up even with her. He couldn't help but grind his teeth. Was he a fool or not to destroy Jason Sheffley utterly and completely? Then the job would be open again, right? Right. He and Clarissa, his dusky beauty, he called her, because her family was originally from Ethiopia, had a vegetarian dinner. She was a great vegetarian cook. Shared a bottle of wine, watched some Netflix, made love, and then crashed until the morning alarm did its bird song bit. He said nothing about the money or any of it. He didn't dare just yet. At 11 o'clock, Jason Shepley had still not sauntered into the office as he usually did. He was two hours late, and Mark Urban hated that. So said Richard, his secretary, a young guy with product-sculpted black hair, studious horn-rimmed glasses, and a wardrobe straight out of GQ. Hey, Richard, said Doug after a trip to the coffee bar. What's happened to Jason? Oh, Mr. Sheffley, said Richard, has suffered some problems this morning. He called him to tell Mark, it's a tragic thing. Really? Doug felt his heartbeat pick up. Uh, can you tell me? His very new Porsche has been vandalized. Yes, right in the supposedly guarded parking garage. Four, four tires slashed and someone threw paint all over that gorgeous vehicle. And then he said there was a problem with his credit cards when he was trying to pay the tow truck. Wow, Doug said. Heart beat, beat, beat. <laughs> yes, and the very most weird thing, all of his credit cards were fouled up. I hope I'm not speaking out of school, but I'm sure it has been a tragic morning for Mr. Sheffley. Yeah, said Doug, he nodded. Tragic. <laughs> As he walked away from Richard's desk, he was aware of being watched by Jane, Roger, Ellen, and Link. Did any of them see him smile just a little bit? He didn't think so. He decided maybe he'd made one of the best investments of his life. He took Clarissa out to dinner that night and they ate Indian food. The following morning at 11 o'clock, Jason Sheffley was still not there and something was up. Doug noted Richard going in and out of Jurgen's office several times and he didn't look happy. Gordon Van Nicholson, the Danish big chief behind Cornucopia, entered Gerber's office, and when he came out, he didn't look happy either. In time, Doug managed to make his way over to Richard. Hey, what's up? No tell. It's hush, hush time. Something with Jason? I'm not at liberty, Doug. Please. Sure, I understand, but hey, aren't we all like a family here? I mean, really, I think of us as a family. So if something's happened to Jason in a way it's happened to all of us in this office. Oh, no, it hasn't, Richard said. And then he took his glasses off to clean them with a blue cloth. And while his head was lower, he said very quietly, you know last winter when Sheffley, no mystery this time, Doug noted, was supposedly on a ski vacation in Aston? Well, it seems Mark has found out that Sheffield was actually in Boulder at a, he checked to make sure Urban's door was still closed. <coughs> Hate-filled anti-LGBTQ rally. He has the pictures to prove it. They're from the website of those animals. Yes, you can see his face right there in the crowd. He's holding a sign that says, 
Well, it is disgusting. Pictures? Doug asked her pictures of him. Very clear pictures. Mark got a call this morning from a young man who was a member of that odious group until he realized he was gay himself and it was, you know, a mental confusion. He lives right here and he's one of our customers, so he decided he should do the right thing in case Jeffy was hiding his true face and, oh my Lord, was he ever. What does Jason have to say? What can he say? Mark says he's trying to find all his ticket receipts and things for Aspen, but he still could have been at the rally in Boulder too, trying to prove he's not guilty. But why in the world would a person make up something like that? And his face is right there. Bottom line, it would be terrible for the company if any of this got out. So I'm swearing you to secrecy, Mr. Jennings. Doug nodded. Mr. Jennings. I like that. <laughs> hush, hush time, he told Richard. And with a mightiest effort, kept his mouth from grinning. Mark Urban is gay, which meant Jason Shepley was destroyed in this workplace, utterly and completely. They pitched his belongings out into the street before 5 o'clock. Wow, what a turnaround. And Jason might offer up excuses and, 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 and receipts, but he had gone to Aspen alone to make time with the snow bunnies. Wow. DSD had done their homework. They had moved fast. And if all continued this way, that corner office would soon have a new name on the door. Doug was considering where to take his dusky beauty out tonight to celebrate, just for the sake of good things to come, sweetness, when his phone buzzed. It was a number he didn't recognize from the Empire State Health Clinic. Doug Jennings, he said, may I help you? Mr. Jennings, said the woman on the line in a sick voice, it is very nice of you to finally pick up. We've been trying to reach you for four months. Do you not respond to your emails or answer your phone? I'm sorry, but this is concerning. I'm concerned, sir, the balance of your account here is long overdue, as you well know. Mm, what account would that be? The $8,000 you owe for your medical procedure. Shall I listen for you? Lady, you've got the wrong person. I have my own doctor, and I've never heard of you before. Well, that's very peculiar, she said. Since I'm sitting here looking at your computer records with your phone number and your home address, that would be 19B at 451 West 39th Street, and it shows a long list of times our collection staff has tried to reach you through our automatic dialing system. That's impossible. No one there has ever tried to reach me. Sir, she answered, the computer says differently. Aha! Doug said, okay, this is a scam. I'm ending this call. We expect a payment of $1,000 within 10 days. If you do not comply, then we'll Doug press the red button, and that was that. Damn ridiculous, but nothing to get him down today. Certainly not a minor mix-up or a scam, which for sure it was. Driving home, fighting that traffic, he marveled at the efficiency of the story incorporated. They found out, first of all, that Mark Irvin was gay, and so was the secretary. Then they had tracked Shefflin's vacation and linked him to that rally by a series of Photoshop pictures. They hired an actor to start the ball rolling and hacked into Cornucopia's records to show the guy was a customer. He didn't doubt that they couldn't hack into Shefflin's travel records and produce a one-night hotel stay in Boulder that coincided with the rally. Very smart, very efficient. Doug figured it was all over for Shefflin. The guy might shoot himself in the head tonight, waste a little bullet, but there you go. <laughs> When he walked into the apartment, Clarissa was sitting on the sofa, just sitting there holding a piece of notebook paper, but her face tight, unsmiling. And she didn't even look at him as he came over to give her a kiss. In fact, she pulled away. Uh-oh, Doug said that I forget an anniversary. 
They had been living together for three months, and Clarissa wanted him to note the exact date every month, which so far he had. Something came up today, she said, still staring straight ahead and past him as he sat down. On the laptop, she motioned toward him on the work desk. They shared the laptop. He's doing some work from home. I thought it was a pop-up ad at first, and I realized it was a notification. Okay, weird, but what? Clarissa looked down at the paper and read what she'd seen on the screen. Dear member BLK Ho Lover 329, <laughs> your subscription is about to lapse. Remember friends at BBBW.com, her eyes lifted his. Well, well, what? I went to the website. I didn't know what it was. Ever heard of BigBeautifulBlackWomen.com? Huh? No, of course I haven't. Duh, she said, if we're sharp. You know what it is. I'm sorry, I don't. It sounds like a porn site, she said. I thought it was a mistake. I thought, I don't know what I thought. Then I started looking through your files. It just, it was something I felt I had to do. Again, he said, weird, but I found your hidden file, she said. The one inside a file, inside a file. All those videos, those black women doing terrible things. Tears suddenly filled her eyes. Oh my God, Doug, oh my God. Is that how you see me, a black hoe? What angel, it's a mistake. It's got to be a, that trash is on the laptop. Her voice shattered. On the laptop I've been using for three months. The timestamps on those videos are from before we even met and the last one was two days ago. Oh my God, oh my God. She began weeping. She stood up and threw the paper into his face. Do I even know you? Did I ever know you? This is beyond what I can take. I'm getting out of here tomorrow. She started walking toward the bedroom. He stood up to grasp her shoulder, but she shook him off and said with horrible ferocity, I am not a hope, but you are a very sick man. Then she went into the bedroom. He heard the lock turn. Doug stood in the middle of the room. It hit him hard. The story incorporated. Somebody was using it on him. He nearly threw up. His heart raced. Somebody in the office, somebody, Jane or Link or somebody he'd stepped on. The call today, the first of it. Now this. And an evil touch in that fake user code they, they, they put in his birthday, 329. He looked at his watch. His hand trembled. They said if he wasn't satisfied, he could meet them tonight at 930 at the parking lot in Newark. He had time to get out there. Find out who was trying to destroy him. Find out, stop them. This was crazy. This was something that could be fixed. Yes, got to fix this. Got to get out there now. On his reckless drive from Manhattan to Newark, he thought they had found out Clar Clarissa was black. They found out she got home an hour before him. They found out her habit was to get on the laptop and look up vegetarian recipes. They put a file full of garbage on there. If she found it, fine. If not, it was there to be found later. They had tracking programs, psychological action predictors, expert hackers. They had all the tools to destroy, and all they needed to plant was a seed, just a seed, then sit back and watch it grow ugly thorns that killed a person. He was in the parking lot surrounded by a chain link fence topped with barbed wire by 9.30. The hulks of dark buildings and wreckage loomed all about. When they came, they came in a black pickup truck. They were wearing their masks. When their shoes touched the cracked concrete, Doug was out of his car shouting, Who's trying to destroy me? Who's trying to destroy me? They stood without moving. Then one said quietly, Are you satisfied with the results on Jason Sheffley? I've got to know who's trying to destroy me. Are you satisfied, Mr. Jennings? 
Okay, yes, yes, yes. But who's trying to destroy me? For God's sake, tell me. His ragged voice was nearly a scream. Suddenly, the two masked men climbed back into their pickup truck. Doug chased it. He saw the license plate, Pennsylvania. As Doug screamed and beat at the side of the pickup, the driver calmly put his credit card into the reader with a black gloved hand. The metal security gate lifted and closed, and then there were just two red taillights speeding away. Doug almost fell to his knees. Yet he had backed to Manhattan now and talked Clarissa out of leaving him, tell her the whole story. She'd believe him. Yes, she would. He would make her believe. Through his credit card, the reader reported declined. He tried again, declined. Tried once more with another card, declined. He tried his debit card and got the message insufficient funds. The machine took no cash, his credit card, debit or nothing, he sat in the car stunned. Then his cell buzzed, his father calling from the family home in Indiana. Doug, his father said, in an anguished voice, oh my God, Doug, why did you do it? What, did what? Your uncle Paul found it on the net. Son, it's gone virus, which might have been funny in any other circumstance. But then Doug's father said, your mother saw it, she's had a heart attack. I'm at the hospital. Dear God, Doug, how did you do it? Your mother is destroyed. Hear me? Your mother is, Doug's cell phone went dead. Just dead. Black screen, no service. Nothing. Doug got out of his car like a sleepwalker. He didn't know where to go or what to do. But he must go somewhere and he must do something. He left his car, staggered between the gate and the fence and out of the parking lot. Was that him sobbing? He couldn't tell because the grip of a nightmare had him by the throat and he was being strangled to death. He staggered on into the darkness amid the broken buildings. He staggered on and on and on into a city that had never before seemed so lonely, so alien, and so destroyed. Thank you.